0: But I am going to tell you that thanks to the Republican voters and donors all across America who have backed and supported um, Trump's policies, America First policies, That is changing our Republican conference. And again, celebrate the fact that the majority of our majority is America first starting in January. It is pro-Trump. And that means that we're gonna be working hard and going after them. And you wanna know something, the ones that don't wanna do it, we're gonna be lighting them on fire with the people behind my back and the people supporting every single bit of it.
1: That's the voice of Georgia Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. Appearing last week on Steve Bannon's podcast, vowing her allegiance to Donald Trump, even as the ex president stokes fresh controversy, and for many, outright revulsion, by dining with anti Semites and talking about throwing out the United States Constitution. When she was first elected two years ago, Green was widely viewed as a fringe far-right figure whose promotion of wacky QAnon conspiracy theories led her to be stripped of her committee assignments. But since then, as journalist Robert Draper documents in his new book, Weapons of Mass Delusion, she has become a singular force in the Republican caucus. And now, with a slender GOP majority about to take control of the House, Green appears poised to be a formidable power broker in the United States Congress. How exactly did this happen? We'll talk to Draper about the rise of Marjorie Taylor Greene and how she managed to pull off her ascendancy within the Republican right. And after taking stock of the triumph of another Georgia figure, the newly re-elected Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock, we'll hear from Alexandra Matvichuk, a Ukrainian human rights activist who next week will receive the Nobel Peace Prize for her work documenting Russian war crimes on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States.
2: And will, to the best of my ability,
1: preserve, protect, and defend
3: the Constitution of the United States. So help me God.
2: So help me God. So help me God.
3: So help me God. So help me God. I'm Michael
1: Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News.
4: I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
1: And
0: I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States
1: United. And we are joined for this episode, or at least the start of this episode, by our Yahoo News colleague, Marquise Francis, who has been covering Georgia politics and the Georgia Senate race. Marquise, welcome to Skullduggery.
5: Thank you for having me.
1: So we've got this kind of split screen uh, from Georgia. On the one hand, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who seems to be accumulating more and more power within the um, House Republican caucus. And yet at the same time, Raphael Warnock, Democratic senator, wins a re-election over Herschel Walker, obviously a big win for Democrats. You were covering this race. How did Warnock pull it off?
5: Well, I think uh, that's the magical question for the week. I think when you look at who the senator was up against, a lot of people are questioning, was this the best that the Republicans had? You know, Warnock obviously just spent the past two years in that position, and a lot of the time Republicans said, 96% six percent of the time he voted with President Biden. And so Herschel Walker tried to use his run as a referendum on President Biden, who hasn't really been doing as well. Um, obviously, folks are hurting in their pockets. And so he tried to positioned himself as the antithesis of President Biden. But the thing is, he didn't offer much beyond that. He really didn't offer much policy. Herschel Walker was anti-abortion, but was accused of uh, pressuring two women to get abortion in his past. Um, He was really lauded as this football star. But beyond that, it was very not much when it came to policy. And so you have Reverend Warnock, who is a esteemed pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, where doctor, late Dr. MLK, used to preach. Um, So he's a great orator. And he's had two years to kind of build himself up as someone who cares about Georgians, whether it comes to women's reproductive rights or voting rights, and someone who aligns himself with other folks like Andrew Young, who who have been popular in the state. And so I think when you look at um, Herschel Walker representing not not only Republicans, but also anything anti-Biden, and then you have Warnock actually putting fourth policy that Georgians cared about, it really came down to the margins Um, and obviously Warnock is a skilled uh, fundraiser and he raised, I think, somewhere between two and three times of Warnock over the entire course of the runoff. And so he was able to get himself in front of voters way more when it came to ads, really catchy ads Throughout the campaign, he was able to hold splashy events. I mean, last week alone, he had a concert with Dave Matthews Band last Monday and he had another virtual event this past weekend with uh, Stevie Wonder. And so the, all these different events, just trying to get himself in front of voters, I think it came down to, for Georgians, a lot of Georgians, what have you done for us most recently? And I think Warnock put himself in front of Georgians uh, way more often.
4: Mark, let me pick up on a couple of things uh, you said. Uh, first of all, the accusation that Warnock was just a rubber stamp for Joe Biden, and that was it. Warnock had a pretty good shield against that. And throughout his campaign, he emphasized his bipartisan deal making. He invoked the names of Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. But you also mentioned Dave Matthews and uh, the Dave Matthews concert that he went to. Tell us why, from a demographic and political point of view, that was significant and what he was trying to achieve there.
5: Yeah, well, at the end of the day, is even though, you know, President Biden was able to win in Georgia two years ago, I think most political experts will, will tell you Georgia still leans red, right? I think it was a huge effort to turn it blue in 2020, and yet the electorate continues to show it still leans to the right. And so when Warnock was on several campaign trips, the one time I went to Savannah, he talked about Ted Cruz and he's like, look, even Ted Cruz, I've worked with him across the aisle, just showing and hopefully appealing to maybe those more moderate Republicans or independents who are a bit on the fence. Some folks who may say Herschel Walker is terrible, but I just want to believe that someone will represent my core values, who Maybe made be a Democrat. And so I think he did that when he invoked some of those other folks like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. And then when it came to the Dave Matthews band, I think when most people hear those words, uh, it may be a little bit of an older generation. Middle-aged um, white guys like me. There, there you go. <laughs> Middle-aged white men, um, it, which, which and I think it was really fitting because when I, so many of the emails that I've received from the campaign, when I think of Atlanta, especially music, I think of you know hip hop artists, right? I know he had an event with rapper Lil Baby um, maybe about a month ago. And as I mentioned, he just had something with Stevie Wonder. But even at the event last Thursday with President Barack Obama, uh, R&B singer Lloyd came out and did about five minutes. But I think having the Dave Matthews band was really a point that the Warnock campaign made to say, hey, we're here. Even in speech recently, he said last night, I see you. And I think that was just another opportunity for uh, the senator to say, I'm here for all of you, even in his victory speech, Senator Warnock said, even for those who didn't vote for me, I want to represent you. And I think um, if you watch a lot of the commentary on the cable news networks, that was the the resounding message. A lot of people walked away with. But with yes, a Democrat won this election, but possibly we're going to get going to get back to the semblance of elected officials representing all of a state instead of maybe just one party.
0: So if you are the Biden campaign, though, looking ahead to Georgia in 2024 and you're reading the tea leaves about this uh, latest election, what are you thinking about? What are you coming away with in terms of your chances to take and maintain Georgia's electoral college votes in 24?
5: Yeah, uh, I mean, I think, number one, maybe you might need to call up the Dave Matthews ban and make sure they're available. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I, I think Joe Biden just has to give people something to believe in. Right. I think right before the midterms, the biggest story was um, relieving student loan debt. And so a lot of people, millions of people were really excited about that. We know it's been a little bit wrapped up in the courts, so we're unsure where that's going to land. But what are people believing in? I always personally have a a tough time because I know politicians, they're representing a party and and a constituents, but yet they have to somehow figure out a way to operate in this middle ground where, yes, they're keeping their constituents happy, but they're also letting, you know, folks who may be their rivals know, like, I still want to represent you. And so I think some of those big issues that were important specifically to Georgia, and especially Republicans in Georgia, were crime, you know, especially when it comes to in and around Atlanta. Obviously, the economy and hope. I, I think the Biden administration is hopeful that the economy is in a better place where he can use that to his advantage, and then figuring out uh, a single kind of message when it comes to abortion. That seemed to be kind of something that kept coming up. Even as I went to a Walker event last week, he talked about abortion, which is kind of almost like wild to think about because so much controversy surrounded him and abortion. And yet he was still pushing that he was a man of God and uh, not for abortion. But I think if. You know, the Biden administration can come together with a singular idea of how they are going to represent the people, which include Georgians and coming to Georgia and saying, we're here for all of you. I think it can bide, bide well. Um, but as we saw in this last election cycle, or at least in this runoff race, Joe Biden was not there. Um, he's not favorable right now. So he's a lot of room to, to make up.
1: So, Marquise, last year, the big story in Georgia was the new Georgia voting law, which Democrats objected to, civil rights groups objected to. They called it voter suppression. President Biden goes down, talks about, uh, you know, this is Jim Crow 2.0. We've now had two successive elections in Georgia under this law. No complaints, serious complaints at all about voters being blocked or prevented from voting, record turnouts in early voting. More people voted this time than voted in the last midterm elections. Have we reached a point where Democrats perhaps should admit that the whole Jim Crow narrative that they spun last year about the voter, the Georgia voting law, was overwrought?
5: I think it depends who you talk to. Right. I mean, if you are talking listen to you. To, yeah. Well, if you're, <laughs> look, if you're listening to me, you know, I'm of the idea that there may be issues that you may not be able to see on the dotted line or, or in the final numbers. Right. And once again, going back to Senator Warnock's victory speech last night, he even mentioned, even though they will say, There is no such thing as voter suppression because of the large turnout, right? We saw 3.5 million people vote in this runoff race. We had 3.9 people vote uh, last month in the general election runoff race. That's not to say that it's not happening. And so with SB202, which is that voting law you talked about, there's less uh, boxes for residents to put their mail-in ballots in. I talk, I went to at least three polling sites in, last week during early voting, and at two of them, the lines were wrapped around the corner. And a couple of the people I even spoke to said, "You know, how do they say there's no voter suppression when I'm waiting on a line for three hours? Um, they didn't receive their mail-in ballot, which I believe there was a shorter window in which those could be even applied for. And so... I think you may not be able to see the effects of voter suppression in terms of a lawsuit, but I think the people of Georgia are feeling it when they have to wait hours on a line to vote, when they have less time to apply for a mail-in ballot and receive it, or more obstacles in which to place it. I think the numbers may be within the margins in terms of what the actual numbers represent, but I think as we see, 5, 10, 15, 30,000 votes actually could decide uh, a lot of these races.
4: So Warnock just won his first full term in the Senate. So he's got six years uh, in office, but people are already talking about his next act. They're already Mm -hmm. talking about him as a new Democratic star. What do you think his aspirations are and where do you think he uh, he fits into the Democratic Party right now? Do you think he's uh, a potential presidential candidate down the road?
5: I think it's all on the table right now. But I also think it's a little bit too early, even for Senator Warnock, to have those lofty expectations, right? Because the last time, at least from recent memory, that I can think of this next Democratic star was better O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams. And we saw they both have lost in consecutive terms, right? And so I think one of the things Senator Warnock needs to do is get into the Senate, pass a bunch of laws, you know, get that bipartisan support that's going to be recognized and championed around the country and really do some things that are hopefully influential and groundbreaking uh, of sorts. I know um, his colleague, Senator John Ossoff, who got his first six-year term two years ago, he's been big on um, even bipartisan legislation when it comes to guns. And I think think every senator needs to have some type of hallmark legislation that folks can turn to and look to. This is what they represent. This is what they're about. I think we know his um, qualities of a candidate in terms of he's an orator, right? He's a pastor. So almost he's not as good as Obama just yet, but his pauses in the way he just eulogizes in a way to people. I think it, it makes it easy for people to listen to him and almost believe in what he has to say. But then it comes back to what kind of policymaker are you? What kind of deal maker are you? We've seen he can fundraise. We've seen he can attract people to an event. But what is he going to do when it comes to working across the table? She's seen he can do, but we need to see more of it. Right. And I think one of the things we do, or I guess just as critics or, or or just American citizens, is sometimes we anoint um, this next savior almost too early before they really battle tested. And so I think we'll at least have the next two uh, or at least, let's say, 12 months to see who uh, Senator Warnock is, because it's crazy enough another 12 months, we'll be gearing up for another presidential election um, just to see who he is, the person. I think it's on him to to step up to the occasion. But I, I think a lot of Americans are looking for a new leader. Right. President Biden, if I'm not mistaken, just is the 80 just turned point? 80, <laughs> just turned 80. Right. And, and that's nothing to say about, you know, people of an older generation can't lead. But, he showed some gas um, along the past year, whether it's shaking the wrong person's hand or not shaking anyone's hand at all. And so when you see Senator Warnock having two, three, four campaign events over an entire four week stretch of justice runoff and then prior to that, just never stopping. I think you see someone who wants it. You see someone who who believes he has an opportunity. And I think with the momentum he had in Georgia, if he can pull it off there, who's to say he can't pull it off for the entire country?
0: So one person who seems to have faded into the background in the last few weeks has been Stacey Abrams, who for a long time was uh, thought of as kind of inheriting the mantle that you're speaking of, the the kind of one of the, the, the great future of the Democratic Party from the South. Has she, as a result of losing her second gubernatorial race, been kind of mortally wounded as a national figure or as a political figure in Georgia?
5: I would say it's just time to regroup. I, I, I think in the immediate, of course, she it's almost like, you know, having two stains of two straight losses on you definitely reverberates. And people know that. At this point, Stacey Abrams has done a lot when it comes to voting rights and the census, you know, with her uh, various groups in the state. But she's also lost two straight elections. And so I know her name has been thrown out there, possibly working in President Biden's cabinet. Um, I saw she did tweet and congratulations to Senator Warnock, who she called a great friend. Who knows, right? Maybe if Senator Warnock runs, she would be a fitting, you know, vice president or, or running mate.
1: Good. I, I don't think you can have two from Georgia. No,
5: on <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but so that that wouldn't work out. Yeah, it may not work out. But I think a lot of of what happened with uh, Stacey Abrams was a lot of people wanted to know who she was a person. I think once again, when it came to policy, she was buttoned up. She had all the right answers. But uh, I went to an event um, this summer um, where she spoke specifically to black men and a lot of black men, even in the restaurant who who I asked, hey, you know, where do you stand? A lot of them were undecided specifically because they didn't know where she stood on crime and they were just still a bit questioning who she was as a person. I even just shared that with her right after our interview. Um, and so I think definitely her ego and also her. Kind of stature in national politics is a bit bruised, but it's not to say if she takes a couple of years off and kind of still continues to build up the coalition that she has been doing, she can't reemerge and possibly run for Senate, right? When John Office Ossoff is up, or run for a more national role, fit in someone's cabinet. Um, you know, I think America loves a redemption story, and and why not have someone like Stacey Abrams who, you know, once was in the House in Georgia House lost twice for the governor and then had some type of amazing redemption story.
4: And I don't think there's any doubt that the that that Warnock benefited from the coalition that Stacey Abrams has built in Georgia and the kind of organizing prowess that she has uh, demonstrated over the last few years.
5: Absolutely.
1: All right. Well, uh, Marquise, I want to uh, thank you for your reporting on this. We're about to pivot to another Georgia figure who is getting quite a bit of national attention, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But thanks for being with us. And we will definitely want to check in with you as uh, events in Georgia and in the rest of the country on democratic politics uh, unfold. So thanks a lot.
5: Absolutely. Thanks for having me.
1: Okay, we've now got with us Robert Draper. Robert is a contributing writer and soon to be full-time staff member of the New York Times and also the author of the new book Weapons of Mass Delusion when the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Robert, welcome back to Skullduggery.
3: Thanks for having me back.
1: I love the uh, subtitle. When did the Republican Party yeah. lose its mind?
3: Yeah, I mean you folk you you for you put emphasis on the word "when" um, because it's not a "how" book. It's not it's not meant to go back through fifty years of Republican you know machinations. It really instead, my captures an eighteen month moment in time, beginning with January the sixth, and I was inside the Capitol that day. And we can talk about that or not. Um, but uh, but it was but after that day, clearly the Republican Party was was faced with a choice which was that it could atone for its role in in, um, the insurrection or not. And it it, it chose the latter. It it, um, chose instead to double down on the kind of MAGA creed that gave rise to um, the riot at the Capitol. And so my book really focuses on a moment when the Republican Party had, in my view, by any reasonable standard, taken leave of its census at a point at which it could certainly have gone the other way. Sir Robert,
4: let's actually talk about your experience on January 6th, which you describe quite vividly in the book. And you point out that as a journalist, you spent a lot of time in conflict zones, including in Afghanistan, Somalia, Yemen, uh, the Congo. But in some ways, you say being at the Capitol on that day was as harrowing and upsetting as anything else you've witnessed. So describe your experience on January 6th and explain what in particular was so horrifying to you.
3: Sure. The, I mean, the book was intended to be about the Republican Party after the Trump presidency, and the assumption when I got the contract in late December of 2020 was that it would book would be a book that would sort of focus on the intra-party civil war, uh, but with the expectation that, um, I mean, look, when I got the contract it I think, December the 20th or something, Trump hadn't conceded yet. The expectation was that he would. There were reasons now in retrospect to, to fear that violence would take place in the Capitol, but I plead guilty of the fact that I didn't fully comprehend that at the time. And uh, so I showed up to work for the book on the morning of January the 6th, intending to uh, bear witness to what's been understood to be a ceremonial process and the peaceful transfer of power by the ceremonial counting of the electoral votes. And and uh, I wasn't able to get into the media gallery. I'm credentialed, but because of social distancing, they only allowed one person per media, per news organization in. And so I just kind of shuffled around the Capitol to see what might be going on and happened to hear a commotion on the West side when I was in the rotunda. Went down towards the West Terrace and saw the doors fly open and these police come in, um, uh, you know, battered, maced, their eyes swollen, their faces distended, uh, running around trying to get water. And I hung around there for about 45 minutes, um, actually with a, an administrative staffer helped set up a, an ad hoc water station to help uh, the cops flush their eyes out with water and, and talking to them, you know, they were, astonished and terrified at what was going on outside and every so often the doors would fly open and you could see just it looked like a you know something kind of a Francis Ford Coppola movie of, of you know people hanging from the scaffolds of what was in, what were intended to be the the rafters for the inaugural ceremony to take place two weeks later and just this you know visceral roar from outside and it was evident that that the place on the West Terrace was going to blow at any moment so I went out through the tunnels Um, went back outside and then to the east side of the Capitol where for about an hour, I watched the crowd push its way in. And, uh, and, and that, you know, to what you were just referencing was such a dismaying and really cognitively dissonant sight for a a reporter who goes to the Capitol a lot and, and um, reveres the building, you know, um, uh, has friends there lots of sources and to see what you'd expect would take place in, in, countries like you named that I've been to, Somalia, Libya, Afghanistan, the Congo, uh, Yemen, to take place in, in our capital and, and to see also the just the pulsing of a crowd where it was so evident that violence not only could break out, but was destined to break out if they found the proper target. I mean, it's you know now that we've seen the footage and seen how close 40 feet that they were to Mike Pence, for example, there's very little doubt in my mind that that had they come that, you know, had they come closer had uh, to Pence, to Pelosi, to AOC, that there would have been terrible physical violence. The miracle of that day was that, is that you know, more killings didn't occur, but it was, you know, that certainly for me a really uh, shattering event to see and and needless to say gave me a new you know notion of of what this book would be but frankly expected that after this the republicans would come to their senses and they went the other way
0: so you you mentioned that it was a, a kind of a, to, to a certain degree, a turning point for the Republican Party. And one of the key figures in kind of guiding or navigating the party through this difficult decision making was the uh, prospective speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives, Kevin McCarthy. What do you know about how he made his decision about how he was going to deal with this and uh, what ultimately led him to Pivot, if you will, to where he ended up
3: McCarthy had made the calculation going back to 2017. I know this because he told me so when he was minority leader, that the Republican Party could not afford to have Donald Trump as an enemy and uh, that that he had such a control over the base that he could take down the party if that's what he wished. And so for all of the horror that McCarthy and his staff experienced, because um, their their place was ransacked, they had to flee. And McCarthy, indeed, as I reported in my book, when he conversed with Trump by phone that afternoon, said, they're fucking trying to kill me. You know, for all of that, once he took a breath, and realized, um, you know, that, that um, Trump is still, you know, in every meaningful way, the head of the party. He believed that no, we cannot, as a, as a party, turn the page on Trump. And, and, you know, famously, at the end of January, just a matter of, you know, three and a half weeks or so after the insurrection, um, went down to Mar-a-Lago to to bend the name uh, to Trump. And 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 uh, McCarthy has wanted to be Speaker of the House for a very long time, and to regain the House majority, in his view required the support of Trump or at absolute minimum uh, required that um, they not incur the enmity of Trump. So everything that McCarthy has done since then, up to the present, by the way, uh, bespeaks that calculation.
1: So let's talk about a figure who looms large in your book, and plays a key role in all of the events since then, and that is Marjorie Taylor Greene. Now, you know, when we first read and heard about her two years ago, she seemed just this wacky, far-right fringe figure. You, you know, sort of flesh out who she was in that period uh, and had stuff I had not seen before, including the fact that she was writing under a pen name Elizabeth camp for an online publication American truth seekers in which she was spouting all sorts of nonsensical QAnon conspiracy theories Seth rich was murdered by Hillary Clinton Uh, there were thousands of pedophiles and child traffickers being rounded up by Donald Trump and other nonsense and yet here she is today a real force within a, the new Republican majority. How did this happen?
3: Well, it happened because um, first of all, she recognized something that so many of us, I include myself, did not recognize, which was that she represented the base and uh, and that she was a QAnon adherent was not something that would penalize her in the eyes of the base. In fact, I remember asking her, you know, in the course of my reporting, you know, why didn't you take all that stuff down? You know, that um, all your social media postings from 2017 and 2018, all the crazy stuff. Her answer was, I didn't think it would hurt me. In fact, I I thought it might help me. And every indicator is that that's true Uh, because after all the fundamental precepts of, of QAnon, Frankly, you know the the platform of the Republican Party today, which is that Donald Trump is you know the, this valiant warrior against the deep state. That uh, children are at risk um, under this administration. That Democrats are radical socialists, and that the stakes are existential. They're basically, you know, um, they they're a holy war uh, or a civil war. Pick your pick your modifier, but they're a war. And uh Green recognized all that. And early on, as you're saying, Mike, when she arrived in Congress and she was stripped of her committee assignments one month in, and the assumption was she'd be cast to the curb. But Republicans like Kevin McCarthy quickly recognized that actually, no, um, she has a lot of support. She became one of the biggest fundraisers on Capitol Hill among the Republican Party in her freshman year, an unheard of sum of money. Uh, raised by her. And uh, uh, on top, and and so as a result of that, uh, McCarthy began to invite her into policy meetings. Now he has promised her plum committee assignments. So she, um, he's not doing any of this because he loves her. He's doing all this because frankly, he fears her and he fears what she represents.
4: So let me follow up on that because, you know, it seems to me that in some ways, understanding the people who put her in power, uh, the voters of uh, Georgia's 14th district and uh, the northwest of that state, are as important to understand as the politicians themselves. You you spent time um, campaigning with her and, you know, you talk about the base. But who are these people and uh, why did she win in that part of Georgia by whatever it was this last election, 19 points? I mean, she killed her opponent.
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was more like 30 points. And, OK. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and Democrats invested in uh, some K Street Republicans invested tons of money in that race, and and ultimately shaved off maybe three points from um, when she ran in her freshman term. Her her base, you know. So let's stipulate the fact that the MAGA base, and and I, in a way, that's a redundancy because the base of the Republican Party really still is the Trump base. They, um, I mean, let's stipulate that that among them are a number of affluent people, but in her. Her district, the 14th in northwest Georgia, as you say, it's largely non-college educated, working class white voters, and uh, many of them who self-identify as Christian uh, and who believe that their America has been stripped away from them. But I hasten to add that that. and this is something that took me a while to understand and i, I think what i when i first saw her speak out of state something in at a place in arizona and saw how she was treated like a rock star and then started visiting her office and noticed how her office walls were festooned with all these letters and i first thought oh that's a cute little gimmick i started reading them. there are hundreds of them everywhere and, and almost none of them are from georgia they're all from all over the u.s and i realized holy crap, she has a she has a national following. And, and the through line in them isn't, you know, gee, we hope you'll get tax cuts for us or something. It's that you're you're our warrior. Now that now that President Trump has left Washington, you're the proximate MAGA warrior and uh and you're fighting for us. Even if it's a losing battle, we appreciate that you're fighting.
4: I will say that I was uh during the primaries, I was in Commerce, Georgia for a Trump rally and uh You know, she showed up. You know, maybe a couple of hours after people had gathered there, but long before Trump began to speak, and there was more excitement at at that moment about Marjorie Taylor Greene than Donald Trump. And the the throngs of people, including children, who were running up to her, she was signing their their hats and signing their T shirts. uh, It was pretty extraordinary. So, just to your point, but.
0: You don't actually hide that you believe that the base is diluted and that it's being uh, fed a bunch of conspiracies and and that it's believing a bunch of conspiracies. I suppose that the tough question is, is Marjorie Taylor Greene herself diluted or is she, in fact, consciously pursuing a kind of a, a scheme that catapults her to power?
3: I guess the short answer to that would be she believes enough of it. And and yes, she believes things that I I think that most fact based people would consider delusional, prominent among them that the election was stolen, but also that that COVID vaccines are some kind of Chinese plot. They 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 variously don't work or, or kill people. She believes those things. But she also very consciously Amps them up, and she's confessed to me that she hyperbolizes, and and uh, she does this because there is a reward system for doing so, and um, there's a reward system in terms of social media following, and there's a reward system connected to that in terms of online donations, and she is a performer in the attention economy. You know, she's she's figured out that um, that a freshman from Congress can be one of the biggest fundraisers on Capitol Hill. And then in turn confers power on you simply by getting a lot of attention. And you get a lot of attention by saying the most outrageous things imaginable. And it's not enough to call, I mean, the, <clears throat> I noted that in her 2020 campaign, her slogan was Save America, Stop Socialism. I showed up to her 2022 campaign and and the slogan was uh, Save America, Stop Communism. And you know, her people had said, yeah, we, we've moved the needle.
4: You make the point that she she has to compete against herself. That what she says yeah. one day has to be more outrageous than what what she said before. The question that that raised in my mind is: is that sustainable?
3: That's a great question, and, and none of us knows the answer to that. I mean, it's you know, it's possible that we're seeing that with Trump. I mean, it's um, I still you know there are a lot of people in Washington who are of the belief that. That, for example, you know, what happened in Georgia uh, uh, with the runoffs are proof yet again that Trump and Trumpism are fading from view. I do not think that a general election in a swing state is a referendum on uh, or or in any event uh, tells us much about what the Republican base is. I don't, you know, and and, uh, uh, in fact, we've seen now, you know, (laughs) ever since 2016, we've seen in election cycle after election cycle that the general electorate is repelled by trumpism and given an opportunity to express its revulsion will do so it did so yet again but it's but uh, what remains to be seen is whether the base itself will get tired of losing and i do not know that um the answer to that yet but my money is on um the MAGA base still essentially being what it is if only because they live in an ecosystem where they're bombarded by the same disinformation over and over again, there is um, there are financial incentives for all of these right wing media groups, uh, you know, from Breitbart to Real America's Voice uh, to be pumping out all of this stuff. It's all they know. It's all they hear. And it's all their leaders tell them. It's all their pastors tell them. And it's I suppose it's possible one day that they'll wake up on masse, just as they were diluted on Moss about 2020 and say, yes, but we're tired of losing. And we'll tune out to all of those influencers. But it's doubtful. It is.
1: A couple more beats on, on Marjorie Taylor Greene, because she's such a fascinating character. You spent a lot of time with her, including a lunch that you describe, uh, you write about, in which you're trying to, in your own mind, resolve the question, is she as dumb and crazy as she seems? And you reach the conclusion that she's not as dumb as some people think she is, but you were a bit unclear on where you came down on the crazy part. So describe the lunch and describe why you did not conclude that she is as dumb as she seems.
3: Sure. The lunch you're referring to um, took place in Rome, Georgia, in February of 2022. It was the first time I'd gotten to talk to Green after about one year of trying. So, you know, for those who have asked the question like, wow, how'd you get to spend so much time with her? It was not exactly an overnight proposition. It took a year. And, and, you know, showing up in her district, showing up to public events of hers, starting to get to know her staff. And ultimately that led to this off-the-record lunch that she ultimately allowed to be on the record. Green was wary um, in that initial meeting, um, but it was clear that she had thought she was she was intentional about things um that this was not all just about uh uh reacting in some nutty reflexive way to what you know someone said i mean she she knew what she was doing and she knew what the results of it were in terms of again you know the um, financial rewards etc she's you know capable of speaking in whole paragraphs and you know to that extent uh, you know the despacho police and things like that notwithstanding you know, it's, <laughs> um, I mean, I, you know I, yes yeah yeah i mean you know, hey just the,
1: explain what you're referring to there if our yeah, listeners yeah, yeah, have forgotten yeah,
3: right 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 now I've, I've almost forgotten myself but she but she did like refer to something that the democrats were doing that would amount to a gestapo force you know coming after them and she said the Gaspacho police <laughs> and uh and and actually you know, you know later i was having a meal with her once and ordered Gaspacho. And she'd actually never seen gazpacho before. But, you know, I mean, look, I'm I'm certainly not going to say that she qualifies for Mensa or something like that. But I think that that um, her recognition of what her constituency is and that constituency extends well beyond the 14th District of Georgia is, if anything else, proof that her opponents have as uh, George W. Bush used to say, "Misunderestimated her, you know, and, and, uh, uh, I, I think that McCarthy himself, you know, had early on when she was stripped of her committee assignments, figured that she would more or less fade away. And, dance. you know, now he's relying on her to whip, to whip for votes for him to be speaker. So the crazy thing is a little you know, more complicated because she subscribes to crazy things, you know, to, to crazy notions. It's, I mean, it's, uh, you know, when I talked to her about the 2020 election, she said, "Now, Robert, you come on, you can't possibly think Biden got 81 million votes, do you?" And I said, "Yes, I do, because that's the vote count." But I mean, from that question, you launch, you know, a host of conspiracy theories. I mean, it's um, you think that that you know Dominion and Kamala Harris and Venezuela and Italy all you know plotted together to overthrow this election because you can't imagine you've never met a Biden voter. And, and, so, you know, and the, you know, that, um, I mean, uh, you, you can believe that, that, uh, Democrats are radical or something, but to believe that there's a, a bunch of government bureaucrats are running a pedophilia ring or something. And, 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 uh, I mean, this is, this is crazy stuff. But Robert,
4: uh, you, you got a hold of a uh, tape recording of her, Mm. uh addressing the republican conference when they were debating whether or not to expel liz cheney and she was spewing a lot of this QAnon nonsense explaining how she sort of fell down that uh, rabbit hole and and not saying it wasn't true and she got a standing ovation from like a third of the people in that room right
3: yeah well yeah so she so she did say okay look i mean yes 9 11 was real Yes, school shootings are real. I actually had you know, a near school shooting in my in my school, which she grossly exaggerated. but but basically, her rationale for all this was, look, i'm I ended up believing all this stuff because how could one possibly believe the CNN and The New York Times because they lied about the Russia collusion hoax. So I went down a rabbit hole and found alternative information. I mean, it's and but she, yeah, she, explained it, semi-apologized for some of it, but then basically then doubled down on saying the Democrats are the enemy and they're going to take not just me down, but the rest of um, you all down. And a third of the conference stood up and applauded her. Others then later said, look, you know, the the headline of this meeting is going to be, you know, we throw out a Liz Cheney and we applaud a Marjorie Taylor Greene. Let's, you know, uh, let's get real here. But frankly, look at the opposing trajectories. You know, Liz Cheney's an exile in her party. Marjorie Taylor Greene is ascendant in her party.
0: So let's do talk about Liz Cheney for a moment, because even as the you know the Republican Party has elevated people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, it has also kicked out people like Liz Cheney. But there are still people within the Republican Party who are fighting, if you will, back against the the mass delusion, not just Liz Cheney. What are they trying to do and do they have any prospect of of success?
3: Well, let's be clear. I mean, it's um, in Congress, for example, there are plenty of Republican members of Congress who disapprove of Trump, disapprove of Trumpism, want to go away. None of them are speaking of literally zero. And and the reason for that is the reason we just mentioned the two words, Liz Cheney. They've seen proof positive of what happens when you speak out against Trump. So the rule, you know, in Republican politics has largely been, unless you're in, you know, a bluish state like Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, for example, the rule is you can say that the 2020 election wasn't stolen. You can even vote to certify the election, but you cannot say a bad word about Donald Trump. If you do that. In um, a red district or a red state, uh, you will definitely pay the cost. And and the, the the model it's believed for how to pull this off are the two um, governors of Arizona and Georgia, Doug Ducey and Brian Kemp, who've never spoken a cross word about Trump. They've just um, they just went about their business of certifying the election. Now, Ducey actually, you know, stepped down and didn't run for Senate because he figured that he would not withstand. Arizona Republican primary voters, he would truly be walking into a wood chipper, you know, with uh, with having not been an election denier. But Brian Kemp, you know, just um, uh, you know, he still, you know, passed a you know uh, uh, oppressive uh, voter restrictions and and all that. But um, uh, but basically, he never said anything bad about Trump, and to this day, has not, and and campaigned of the Trump-backed Senate candidate, Herschel Walker, for example. So, no, it's it's not at all clear. I and mean, then you look at, like, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis isn't saying anything, you know, anti-Trump. He's waiting for somebody else to do that.
1: But, Robert, you don't sense a shift in the last couple of weeks after the dining with the anti-Semites, Kanye West and Nicholas Fuentes, and, you know, then the deranged posting about uh, <laughs> terminating the... The United States Constitution, so he could be reinstated as president. I mean, there's been—I I know the that you know some Republicans, like you mentioned, DeSantis, have not spoken out, but a lot have. Isa Hutchinson, John Cornyn, Lisa Murkowski, more and more are doing so. And there's a, a line of thinking that this may have been, you know, a break point for yeah. the Trump fever. Do you? I, I take it you don't buy that, but. Give us your take.
3: <laughs> I don't buy it. Um, I don't, don't buy it because we heard um, roughly the same quantity. Of denunciations after January the sixth, and then they all kind of went to ground, and and uh, they went to ground because they went home and they faced their constituents. John Cornyn, when he runs in a Republican primary, I can guarantee he's not going to say anything bad about Donald Trump. You know, in in Texas, once he goes home, that's not going to happen. Lisa Murkowski, obviously a different situation. She was a different situation back in in January. Alaska is a different kind of state. You know, and and uh, but uh, but no, I think that that I also think, by the way, that the. Nick Fuentes, you know, uh, incident him having dinner over there is um, as disturbing and deplorable as it might be. I don't think that the, um, the Republican base cares at all. I don't think they'll penalize him for this any more than they penalized him for um, the Access Hollywood tape. I mean, it's uh, that Trump has done this Is I mean, you know, again, I have to say i spent so much time in, you know, the, the MAGA universe, by which I mean not hanging at Mar-a-Lago. I'm talking about going to states like, you know, Georgia and Arizona and in other pockets of America where that are deep red and they're not swayed by this stuff. They either believe that that it's being distorted by the mainstream medium and or they kind of like it. So Donald Trump is running for president again. True. Sure. Uh,
4: yeah. And you mentioned Ron DeSantis, who is likely going to run as well, although we don't know that for sure. There will be other Republicans, presumably, who will get into the contest. A, do you think for any one of these other candidates to prevail, they are going to have to go after Trump in a way that they didn't uh, in, in 2016? And B, if they do... Or if they don't, do you think that Donald Trump right now is the likeliest winner of the Republican primary, given what you're saying about the base?
3: Yeah, and to walk backwards, right? Yeah, I think he's the likeliest. The base still loves him. There's not much evidence that the base really has, has moved away from him. If he didn't run, the base would migrate over to DeSantis. They think they like him thus far. The truth is they don't know much about him, but they like what they've heard. All of these candidates who are essentially... Um, conducting kind of whisper campaigns saying that they intend to run, but are not actually announcing they're going to run, and I include DeSantis in this category, by the way, have not encountered the blast furnace that Jeb Bush, that Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, Scott Walker and others did in 2016. I mean, you know, Trump is, I mean, he's a vicious candidate and it's really, really I mean I it's hard to imagine that any of them will do anything except first just hope that he self-emmolates. And I do think that that that's a more important factor for them even than fundraising, just to see that that if the numbers really move and that somehow the base starts to pull away from him. Unless and until that happens, we'll see how many people are really willing to run against Trump. Um, but what's evident right now, I mean, it's, you know, again, DeSantis hasn't even declared, and I still receive all these blast emails from MAGA world and see, you know, what Trump is already, you know, trying to position himself. I mean, saying that he knows more about DeSantis than, than anybody, including DeSantis's wife. And, and uh, I mean, he's, he's going to be vicious.
4: I should say that uh, we have a, uh, there's a uh, Yahoo News uh, YouGov poll that is about to be out that shows uh, that DeSantis uh, is now tied with Trump um, and he's moved up 10 points, but he's leading Trump by double digits among people who voted in the primary. Uh, But Trump has also had, as Mike pointed out, a very bad few weeks. Uh, So uh, we'll see whether that's sustained. Yeah
1: so before we get to who's going to be the republican uh nominee or before that decision will be clear there's a more immediate one and that is whether kevin mccarthy is going to get to be speaker and on that point You know, when you were doing this book, Marjorie Taylor Greene told you she wouldn't ever vote for McCarthy as speaker. Now she's saying something very different that she is, although it's not clear that McCarthy. I mean, there are still, I think, what, five firm no votes or at least members saying they're going to they won't vote for him under any circumstances. So what's your take about how that plays out and whether McCarthy indeed becomes the speaker of the House?
3: Sure. So first of all, just to clarify, Green never said to me she at any time that she would never vote for him. She did. She wasn't sure if she liked the guy. She found it difficult to imagine voting for him, but she was keeping her cards pretty close to her vest they, she has said to me that they haven't cut any deals. I think she hasn't cut any deals with McCarthy because she knows she doesn't need to. She's, I mean, he's essentially just said, you know, you, you can serve on oversight, you know, that's um, uh, you're going to be in all the high level policy meetings. You're a party leader, you know, and, and, for, and frankly, he didn't even need to tell her that she already knew it as to the predicament that McCarthy is currently in. I think your mathematics are right. You know, I think that, that he's, He's, um, he's five short that, um, uh, that's enough to, you know, keep him from being speaker the Republicans, and this has been the case for over a year now, they've been talking for a year about how they don't want McCarthy and they have yet to find anyone who will really run against him. Andy Biggs has run as a kind of protest candidate. We've heard Ralph Norman of South Carolina now claim they have a surprise candidate who, who they'll bring forward. I don't know. Is this Jim Dement? Is this Mark Meadows? I actually have heard those names floated. Mark Meadows. Yes. Yes. After, yes.
1: The guy right in the middle of January 6th and all the stop the steal stuff. I mean, and- as
3: as if that has ever you know stopped these guys so it's um no but that's what republicans have said to me and and uh, these you're right though i mean these i mean where are they going to get the votes for this so i mean as you know the way it procedurally works is that uh if you don't get 218 then parties sort of you know return to their respective corners um have their discussions and then they vote again and they vote again and they vote again and and uh Given that McCarthy is the only plausible candidate that Republicans have, and I think that, you know, among the questions that among the things that he may have to give away that he doesn't want to are, uh, say, a motion to vacate, you know, which which means that, um, that basically any member of the Republicans who decide, you know, that they uh, don't like something that McCarthy did will can move to vacate. speakership and uh, that would neuter him but and it certainly he's disinclined to give them that now but he could do it later i mean the problem with all the other horse trading he might do to get let's say um a ralph norman you know uh to vote is that if he does that then someone who right now is reluctantly voting for speaker paul gosar might say well you gave ralph norman that what are you going to give me and then if you start giving people that kind of stuff then The people who are firmly on his side may pull away. And then if they try to get Democratic votes, then um, then Marjorie Taylor Greene backs out. So, I mean, (laughs) I don't know how it ends, but I also just know that the Republicans don't have anybody else.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to balloting that will revive the days of political conventions when you had ballot after ballot. I think in 1924, the Democrats had 100 (laughs) ballots before they uh, uh, reached a candidate. uh, And we could be uh, looking at a marathon on January 3rd uh, to pick a speaker. Robert, I want to. Uh, Thank you uh, for a great discussion and a really illuminating book, Weapons of Mass Delusion When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it.
1: an opportunity the other day to meet with Alexandra Motvachuk, the Ukrainian human rights activist who next week at a ceremony in Oslo will receive the Nobel Peace Prize on behalf of her Kiev-based organization, the Center for Civil Liberties. Motvachuk was briefly in Washington to receive another award as a woman trailblazer from Hillary Clinton. During my interview, she talked about her message for the American people and the world about the Ukraine conflict, about her campaign to create a special international tribunal to try Vladimir Putin for war crimes, and about what it's like to live in Kiev right now while the city is being bombarded by Russian missiles. Take a listen. All right, we are here with Alexandra Matvichuk, a lawyer, human rights activist, and director of the Center for Civil Liberties, whose organization has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. Alexandra, thanks for joining us. Nice to meet you. One message you have is that Ukraine needs more weapons. Some might say it's a bit odd for a Nobel Peace Prize winner to be talking about trying to obtain more weapons of war. That does seem a contradiction on its face.
2: I can understand this, people. It's a really weird situation. And I'm angry that I'm in a situation when I have no legal instrument to stop Russian atrocities. It's not okay that human rights lawyers say that only weapons can save the life of people in occupied territories. It's a very dangerous world to live in, but for current moment, it's true. We need military support in order to save life of Ukrainian defenders and to save life people in occupied territories.
1: How do you respond to those who say, for the good of the Ukrainian people, there has to be um, some diplomatic back-channel that is pursued here? Uh, in hopes of reaching some sort of settlement.
2: Let's turn from the theoretical discussion to some practical examples. I have a friend, Andriana Susak. She's a courageous woman. She stopped her commercial career in 2014 and joined Ukrainian armed forces when the war started. When the large-scale invasion started, she left her six-year-old son and continued fight for his peaceful future and she was among those Ukrainian defenders who liberated people in Kharkiv region. He took part in the battle for Kherson, and she was in Washington. She spoke with congressmen, with American people, and she informed about Russian atrocities and needs of Ukrainian army in order to stop them. And she asked for armed vehicles, because she witnessed a lot of accidents when Ukrainian militaries use civilian cars because they have no armed vehicles and they were exploded on mines. And several days ago, your car was exploded on mines. It's not theoretical discussion. It's a real discussion. There is an illusion to think that Putin will stop if he obtains something. Putin will stop only when he will be stopped. And this means that we have to oppose and to resist to Putin jointly because if we will not be able to stop Putin in Ukraine, he will go further.
1: You live in Kiev. Um, You've posted some dramatic uh, photos showing young children uh, hovering uh, by candlelight at night, eating, trying to do schoolwork. Give us a sense of what it's like to be living in Kyiv right now under these Russian missile attacks.
2: It's rather cold. I have no heat in my fat, And we live in a world of total uncertainty. Like, okay, everything which we take for granted and name the normal life is very fragile. When you have no light, you can't plan. When you go to shop or when you go to postal office, because you have no idea when the ear alarm started and all shops and postal office were closed or when the lightware disappeared and suddenly you, you can't do Zoom with your partners to discuss some working issues because you have no connections. So it's difficult, but uh, we will endure this winter.
1: The Russian strategy seems to be uh, to use these attacks... To break the will of the Ukrainian people to resist. Is there any chance that they could succeed in this?
2: The Russians failed in preparations. In this war, all Ukrainians know what for what we are fighting for. We are fighting for our freedom. We are fighting for our democratic choice. We are fighting for human dignity.
1: Do the Russians have any support in Ukraine?
2: It's very hard to get support when, when uh, Russians hit uh, residential buildings, churches, schools, hospitals. Like, um, we have a joke that Putin is uh, one of the best uh, consolidators of Ukrainian nations.
1: You have called for a special international tribunal to try Vladimir Putin. How do you imagine um, putting him and his leadership on trial in an international tribunal absent an invasion of Russia and toppling his government?
2: Our task is even much more ambitious because we speak not only about Putin and the rest of senior political leadership and high military command, we speak about all Russians who committed these crimes by their own hands. And we speak not from the side of perpetrators. We don't need revenge. We need justice. I speak from the side of the victims of this war. And my goal is to provide chance for each person who suffered from war crimes for a fair trial and effective investigations, regardless of who they are, what the type of crime they were endured like uh, whether or not media is interested in their cases. Yes, it's a question how to physically, like, uh, arrested Vladimir Putin. But look to the history. There are a lot of successful and very convincing examples when people who seem themselves untouchable suddenly appeared under the court. So, okay, there is nothing which be guaranteed. But we are not predicting future. We are fighting for, to create the future which we want.
1: A final message that you have for the American people? What do you want them to know about what's going on in your country right now?
2: I think two things. First, we are very grateful to American people for all support which we receive in these dramatic times. It's very essential. Ukrainians will always remember who help us to resist to this genocidal war, who help us to fight for freedom, for democracy and for human dignity. It's first, which I want to emphasize. And second, we need more support. This war has different dimensions. We we discussed the military, which I'm not expert because we need military support, but also there are informational dimension of this war, economical dimension of this war, like, and value dimension of this war. And Putin, he tried to convince the whole world that democracy, freedom, rule of law, human rights are fake values, because they couldn't protect you during the war, because the law doesn't work. But I do believe that it's temporary, and that's why we need support In our fight for justice, we must establish international tribunal and hold Putin, Lukashenko, and other Russian war criminals accountable.
1: Well, I know that um, a lot of our listeners and readers will um, be wishing you the best of luck and hope that um, Ukraine can preserve its independence and freedom. I want to thank you for spending the time.
2: Thank you.